Good. This is good. I was going to tell a funny story. And as we were singing that song, um, how many of you really, really, really believe what you just sung? Because that whole song is, that is such an amazing message about what faith is. Faith is a lifestyle. Faith isn't something that we do. Faith isn't a life preserver. Life, faith isn't just flip a coin and hope that it goes a certain way. Faith is a lifestyle that we choose to live, and it's a lifestyle that demands us to walk in a certain way. And the certain way that, that, that this lifestyle demands us to walk is in obedience to the one that we say we have faith in. Because if I, if I say I have faith, if I sing that song, and I, and I sing it for more than just it's a nice song, it's got a nice beat, got some nice harmonies in it. If I sing that song and if I treat that song as a prayer, that is a, that is a lifestyle choice that we are making. And it's a really cool lifestyle because it opens up it opens up something completely different in the way that we experience God. Not just what we believe about God, but what we experience, how we experience God. We experience relationships with people. And when we are experiencing a relationship with them, we are getting to know them. We are becoming familiar with them. They're getting to know us. They become familiar with us. We do not experience people if we are not connected to them. We do not experience God unless we are connected to him. And there's no way that we can be connected to God if we are not living in obedience to him. So we are going to, uh, we're going to move into our passage this week, which is in uh, Mark chapter 5. And we're going to, we're, we're going to be talking about some people who uh, were pleading with Jesus for something. They were pleading for, for something. Now, for most of us, if we are pleading for something, something has gone terribly wrong. Um, we're, in, we're in court. Uh, we have a significant need that we can't have met on our own. Uh, think of the emotions that surround us pleading for something. Maybe a sense of helplessness, a sense of hopelessness, maybe a sense of shame or embarrassment, a feeling of weakness that I can't provide for myself. We live in a culture that exalts self-sufficiency and independence. Because if it's meant to be, what's the rest of the phrase? It's up to me. That's exactly right. Self-sufficiency works until, as the old saying says, until it doesn't any longer then I've got a problem. Then we realize how frail we truly are because when our health gives out, when we lose our job, when that relationship fails, when the economy tanks, 
we try all we can, then we come to the end of our rope, and again, what's the old saying that we have to do with our pride? We have to swallow it, and we have to ask for help. There are two people in our narratives today that are at the place where they are pleading with Jesus from two completely, these people are from two completely different social situations. We think people who are really wealthy, well, they don't have to beg for anything. They don't have to plead for anything. Not the case in what we're going to be reading today. But the level of their needs are not that much different. They both realize that hard as they try, they cannot solve their own problems. And they've got to find someone who has the power and the authority to get involved and make a difference. So our story begins as Jesus re-enters the boat after delivering a man from this legion of demons that we talked about last week in Mark chapter 5. So let's open up. If you've got your Bibles, let's take a look at Mark chapter 5. And we're going to be starting in verse 21. We're going to go verses 21 through 24. Mark, 25, or Mark 5, 21 through 24. And it says this. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the, young, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed in around him. So once again, Jesus is confronted with someone who has a need. Now, the significance of this man is really interesting says that he is a synagogue ruler. At this time, in the small areas outside of Jerusalem where the, where the temple was, there were these synagogues that were all over the place. The synagogues, um, well, as, as, you, as if you've kind of grown up around the church and you've heard Bible stories and that kind of thing, you will know that the Jewish leaders didn't take to Jesus very well because he had openly challenged their authority he had openly challenged their practices, and he openly challenged their power. Now, the synagogue was a place of power in these smaller, these smaller provinces, these smaller towns. There's, these synagogues were all over the place. Um, oftentimes, the synagogues were a place where, uh, where the Torah was read, so like a church kind of service happened there. They would read the Torah, uh, the, which the, the first five books of the Bible. It was also a place where politics happened. Um, there what court happened there. Um, uh, la, 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 there was, uh, so, anyway, so this guy, something in my eye. Um, so this guy is used to being in charge. This, this gyrus, this synagogue ruler. He was used to being in charge. He was the guy with the power in this area. And yet, he responds to Jesus without hesitation. He knew who was the one who had the authority, and he knew that he had none. And so, he, 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 he 
flew to where Jesus was and he, and he takes the posture that, that is very appropriate for someone who is walking into the authority and the presence of God himself. He hit the ground face, to, face down because he was pleading with Jesus. He had a need that he could not meet. By the way, this is the proper posture before Jesus for all of us. Interesting, we go back to last week. There was a man who had all of these demons inside of him. This guy ran to Jesus and his posture, face down. So you have demons who are taking this posture of worship before Jesus. You have this synagogue ruler who is a political power that takes the same posture before Jesus. And this takes us to our first fill in the blank. What is your natural posture before the Lord? If our natural posture is bowed before the Lord in worship, what an advantage that we'll have when things go sideways, when our health gives out, when we lose that job. Because there's another spot where Jesus, it's in Matthew, uh, where Jesus taught in a parable. You guys remember the, the story of the foundations and, and one guy built his foundation of his house on the sand, one guy built the foundation of his house on the rock. What happened to both houses? Storm came. That's right. Storm hit both houses. The structural foundation of that home was based on what its foundation was locked into. If our, the foundation of our life is locked into Jesus Christ himself, in our roots, we were talking about the trees a couple weeks ago, and if our roots are digging down into the person of God, the person of Jesus, there is a foundation that we will have inside of our soul that is greater than any storm that will ever hit us. And if we are choosing to operate in a way that is in obedience to this God that we have sunk our life into, when these storms come, you will be equipped to ride it out. And it doesn't matter how big the storm is. It doesn't matter who it takes out around us. If, if we're still alive, and if our foundation is sunk into God himself, it doesn't matter how big the storm is because that storm is no comparison to the foundation of a person named Jesus. And we get the opportunity to sink our lives into him. It's a choice. It is a very, very intentional choice. Now, if, if I want to experience God, let's say as the Prince of Peace, if I want to experience God as the Prince of Peace, I have to go to him for my peace first. I can't say Jesus is my Prince of Peace and then when, when, uh, when, when stress gets high, but I need a cigarette. That's inconsistent. I can't say Jesus is my Prince of Peace, but I need a Bud Light to calm me down. That's inconsistent. I can't even say Jesus is my primary Prince of Peace, but then lean on a spouse more than I lean on Jesus. 
that's inconsistent. Jesus isn't my Prince of Peace. My spouse is, my beer is, my cigarette is, my sports are, my man cave is. I can have lots of different places where I find peace. And if I go to those things before I go to Jesus, it shows what the roots of my foundation are sunk into. Okay. All right. So if the foundation of our lives are built on family, friends, job, money, whatever, when those storms come and if those foundations are damaged, I would suggest that our houses are in trouble. And that's where we start to really feel the anxiety that we're living with. That's where we feel the worry. That's where we feel the fear. Because what we have chosen to build our lives on has been compromised. And it can get wiped out. So this man's posture and actions revealed what he truly believed about Jesus. Now, something very interesting happens on the way to Jairus' house, where Jesus and and everybody's heading to. And this is where Isaac is going to pick up and walk us through a little detour that Jesus takes. Okay, so... I'm Isaac. Uh, I lead the student ministries here at New Hope, and my microphone's going crazy. Um, that's okay. Okay. So I'm going to talk about uh, something really fun, uh, and by that I'm being a little sarcastic. <laughs> my microphone is it okay. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not the only one hearing that, right? They'll figure it out. Just keep going. Okay. Just you, Isaac. Yes, sir. Could be. I don't think I can. Let's go on and on. Okay. So we're in this story. Um, something happens to Jesus, and he is met by a person. Now, this person, this is their, they haven't even, like, this is their first time that they're even introduced to Jesus. So important part of their journey is that this is the beginning. This is actually before uh, have you ever felt ashamed for doing something? Like the feeling of shame. It's not a pleasant feeling. Uh, shame is far beyond discomfort. Uh, it's feeling fundamentally flawed, unworthy. It's the feeling of needing to run away and hide. It's the tightness of our chest, the dropping of our stomach, the panic of our minds and the clenching of our poor little toes. It's not a good feeling. It's probably one of the worst feelings that we can feel. Um, There's nothing worse. Well, I don't think that's quite true because have you ever wronged or hurt someone so much that whenever you think of them, the only feeling that you feel is shame? And then have you ever met them face to face? them standing in front of you and you having to look them in the eyes. At that moment, do you feel empowered to take on all of life's challenges? I think most people would probably just wish to stop existing at that point. This is what we're going to kind of look at um, picking up in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 24 through 26. It says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew 
worse. So I'm going to be a little vulnerable for a second and say that I get the gist of what's happening to the woman, but I don't really feel the desire to, you know, do more research. Um, I don't need to know the details of this woman's bleeding. And please don't enlighten me after the gathering about what's happening. I'm okay not knowing. That's something that I'm settled in my heart. Um, all I know is that this woman has been dealing with this intense pain and illness for 12 years. And that, as of this moment, is still more than half my life. This illness that she has had to have made her weak every day. She's losing blood, and so she has to be physically weak. Uh, 12 years is around 4,300-something days. Uh, it says that she's been to every single doctor, every healing source that she could find. Um, she had spent everything that she had, and her illness isn't just stagnant. It's not been the same for 12 years. It says that she was actually getting worse. So for 12 years, she's had this pain, and it's been getting worse. It's progressively getting worse. So this lady, this woman, has been living her life for the past 12 years in an unclean state. Religiously, she would have been considered unclean. That means if anyone would touch her or if she would touch anyone else, that they would be unclean. They would be considered unclean. So because of this, this would, this would greatly affect how she would live her life. Um, if she had a family, which it doesn't say that she did, um, but if she did, she wouldn't be able to touch her husband or her kids for 12 years, and they couldn't touch anything that she touched. She couldn't cook food for people. She couldn't work for anything. She could go through, she could go through a process of being ritually clean, but then the next day, she would be richly unclean again. And so it was just, it was a cycle. It wouldn't last long, her being clean. She would always be unclean. There's no way that this would not affect the way that she saw herself, um, how she saw her identity, how she saw her value, how she saw love, her worth, her purpose, all of the above. If you had to label yourself as unclean, for people to touch or be around, how does that not affect the way you see yourself? I'm going to make a note before I move on. I think sometimes we do see ourselves like that, as unclean. We'll come back to that. This woman, she did everything that she could, and for 12 years, she's empty-handed and nowhere else to turn. She's ran out of luck. She hit it at end. There's literally no hope left until she hears some rumors. So if we can continue reading in 27. It says, When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, If I just touched his clothes, I will be healed. So after years of trying and failing, she found someone that was rumored to heal, to heal people, miraculously. And she found something once again to put her hope in, but there were some things that she had to fight through first. First of all, she decided that the only way she could receive healing from Jesus was to sneak up behind him and touch his clothes. We've not seen this before in Mark. Um, it's always been that Jesus like, chooses 
to heal people. He, he says, your faith has healed you. He touched them or he said something. We've not seen someone come up to Jesus and kind of like snatch healing from him. So there has to be something in her mind that told her that she couldn't go up to Jesus and simply ask for healing. And my best guess would be that it was her shame. The shame of believing that she wasn't worthy of his attention, of thinking I'm so unclean that my presence is an issue. And this had to have made her afraid. Um, But she did it anyways, which already must have been tough for her. But she had to fight through the crowd And if the crowd knew her, they could have said something like, hey, you're not supposed to be here. Uh, I don't know if that's what they would have said, but they would have pointed her out, and that probably would have ruined her plan. Uh, Maybe there would have been some words that they would have given her to discourage her from continuing, from moving forward. Uh, But there is more. Uh, The caveat of not approaching Jesus face to face is that now she had to touch Jesus. Now, I'm fairly certain that she knew if she were to touch him, then that would have made him unclean, ritually unclean. Which, that's going through her mind. That's upping the stakes of being found out even higher. So it's probably even increasing the fear and the shame of knowing what I'm about to do. These are probably all going through her mind. The pressure, the stress, more shame, the shame of doing something so selfish because of her fear and already established shame. And this probably creates more unworthiness and more doubts and more thoughts. But all the time, she's pushing through it. But there's one powerful force that is motivating her to push through it. And it was her faith that this is the healer. So in verse 29, it says, Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So she touched his cloak, and she felt immediately that she was freed from it. My fill in the blank is that you don't get faith by getting rid of your shame, fears, and struggles. In order to get faith or increase your faith, you don't have to get rid of everything else. That's not how it works. Because if it did she wouldn't have been healed. If we have to be perfect and right to go to church or to go to God, then we aren't in church right now (laughs) because none of us are perfect. We're not learning how to get to God at church. We are with God right now. So if you don't get faith by getting rid of your shame, fears, and struggles, the opposite is that you get rid of your shame, fears, and struggles by going to Jesus. And that's all that faith is. Faith is us choosing to go to Jesus and trusting that he's going to be there and trusting that he can take our shames, fears, and struggles. This woman in Mark chapter 5, she went to Jesus, which is the faith, even though it was a fearful a hidden and a selfish faith. She never intended to give any recognition or even thanks. This was an imperfect faith that she had, which is why Jesus responds the way he did, starting in verse 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? 
You see the people crowding around, or you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I'm sure that her fear was motivated uh, in being found out. So when Jesus said, Hey, who did that? I'm sure she died a little bit, like her heart sunk. Um, but she came to him because she recognized what happened. She fell to his feet to explain everything that had happened, confessed her actions, confessed her uncleanliness and her faults and her fears and her shortfallings. And then Jesus speaks and says, Daughter. And after years of being rejected, 12 years of being rejected, Someone is claiming her as his. She's standing in front of the very person that you feel unbearable, an unbearable amount of shame, so much that your heart would stop if you met their eyes. And his response was one perfect loving word, claiming her. He did this to complete her faith. She didn't know who Jesus was, but she heard about him. I can't see anymore. Okay. Um, We've all heard about him. And we might not know who he is, but we've heard about him. And we know what he does. And because we've been here for 50 minutes, we've all heard about him. (laughs) So this is how our faith grows. We go to him. We go to him imperfect and broken, trembling with nowhere else to go. And he heals us. Despite the selfishness or incorrect understanding. And he always responds the same. With love. Never rejecting. He's not inconsistent. So he does this so that the next time we're in a tough situation, we know for a fact where we need to go. And that's how he completes our faith. Thank you. So back to Jairus. So touching as this scene is, here's a guy who's waiting for the healing of his daughter. And Jesus is taking his time. He didn't just say, okay, you're healed, but I got someplace else to go. Because this guy is the rich guy. This guy is the powerful guy. And we got to get over to his house. This is not the way that Jesus responds. Can you imagine how, I'm thinking with Jairus, there's, there's got to be two, situa- two mindsets. He could be the, 
My daughter is on her deathbed. Or, you know, is he looking at this and saying, wow, if he can do this for her, what's my baby girl going to get? Doesn't say. But his need is very urgent. So let's pick up chapter 5, start in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Well, you gave me a Kleenex. <laughs> the hope that Jairus had been holding on to was just snuffed out. She is dead because there is no life left in here. Get this. There is no life left, so there is no reason to bother Jesus any longer. Let that thought sink in. Have you ever had that thought? Hope is gone, so why bother God anymore? This is that darkness that if you were watching last week, this is that darkness that Gwen was talking about in her testimony. When hope departs, light is gone, and the darkness replaces the light. But what's really cool takes us to our next fill in the blank and that is that Jesus is unaffected by the things that cause us to lose hope let's pick up in verse 36 I love this verse 36 ignoring what they said Jesus told the synagogue ruler don't be afraid just believe the picture I get in my mind is, it's like, here are these guys, these people that just came to tell Jairus what's going on. Here's Jesus. Here's Jairus. I almost see this picture of Jesus like stepping between him and these people. And he says, look at me. Don't look at them. Look at me. And the message is don't be afraid, just believe. Look at me. This is the picture. You remember the picture of when, um, when Jesus was walking on the water and the, and the guys are in the boat and Peter said, tell me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And he got out on the water and Jesus had to have been saying, look at me. Look at me. Don't look at the wind. Don't look at the waves. Look at me. Because if you look at me, what's going to stay consistent? Your what? Your faith. Look at me. So let's keep going. He did not let anyone... No, no, no. Stop there for a second. So Jesus completely ignored the death report. Completely ignored it. So we go on, verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
Jesus only allowed Jairus, Peter, James, and John to go with him. Why? Because to Jesus, this was not a show. This was his loving concern for a family that just lost their daughter. He was not going to use this to promote anything. He was not going to use this to say, look what I can do. There was no concern over showing anything. This was a family who just lost their child. Think of, think of back to the story when Lazarus died. When Jesus came, his response was he cried along with them because he sensed that, that, that the sadness that was there. He, he was a part of that. Um, this was an act of love, what he was going to do. Very interesting, in the ancient world, it was customary for wealthy people to hire professional mourners. What they did is they hired these people to come in, play sad songs, and cry. That was people's jobs. People's jobs was to go into your house, play sad songs, and cry really, really loud because it heightened this sense of mourning. And so that's what these people are. We, we can see this by the wording that he used. Jesus saw a commotion, people crying and wailing loudly, which is why Jesus responds the way he did, not stop it. This is his response, knock it off. This isn't, I am so sad with you. Jesus says, shut up is what he was saying to these people because they were not there from a place of love. They were there for a paycheck. And so when he comes in, which is why when, when they, you know, you think they, he said, you know, she's sleeping, they laughed. Who at a funeral laughs? You don't laugh in, in a place where someone's child just died, but they did. They were, they were there for a paycheck. They were not there from a place of love. So, again, really interesting. The wording, it says, so, did I read it yet? Okay, so keep going, going. He, he, after he put them all out, he took the child's father, mother, and disciples, and it goes on. That idea of put them out has a very, in, in, the, in the original language, it has a very strong sense of there's, a, there's some violence that goes along with this. This is the same picture of Jesus walking into the temple when the people were selling and, and treating his temple disrespectfully and he threw them out and he turned the tables over. This is the same wording. He threw them out on their ear. You guys are done. Get out of here. It's also the same picture when Jesus casts a demon out of someone. You're out. You're done. Jesus has just cast out sadness, fake sadness. He has just cast out evil. He has just cast, he is beginning the process of casting out death out of a home. So, all right, so let's keep on going. Verse 41. So he took, so I uh, took the, father, the, the child's father and mother, and the disciples who were with him, went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, uh, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone this miracle was for them. 
this was not for the show. This was not for a story at the supermarket. This was a gift that was given from God to a family because he was nuts in love with this family. This is also came as a response to the faith of this man named Jairus. Jesus is able to cast out evil from us. He is able to cast out death from us. What, what do we not have the power to cast out of ourselves in our natural state? Evil and death. It takes the presence of Jesus. They had to have him there in the house. What has the enemy caused to die in you? Hope for a future? Hope for love? Hope for moral or sexual purity? Hope for freedom from addiction? What has he stolen in you? I would like to introduce you to our wonderful testimony givers this week. Um, this is David and Aaron Moline. And they are going to, they're going to, oh, <laughs> where was that going? Uh, they're going to share. So you guys come on up here. There you go. All right. So, Aaron, I would ask you, um, how would you describe what the enemy tried to steal from you? So, for most of my life, I've dealt with pain. So I feel like my story very much identifies with the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. The difference for me is that my pain was from more than one source. If you knew me last year, you probably knew that I was going through so much mental and physical pain. It was literally keeping me from living my life, like I'm sure it was for that woman. As I keep thinking of her, I can't help but think how this kept her from doing so many things, things that God had planned for her. Pain and suffering can literally be paralyzing and leaving you feel so stuck. I know for me personally, this pain became part of my identity. As someone who dealt with mental health pain for so long, I remember thinking that no one could truly understand the pain I was in inside. Once the pain became physical, I started thinking, maybe people will finally understand what I'm going through. Of course, the enemy loved that I was stuck in this trap and he used it against me. This kept me from living my life the way God wanted me to live it and from connecting with others. Was this really what God wanted for me or was I choosing to want my plan? One day when I was going through intensive therapy, we did an activity and we wrote out things that we wanted to let go of. It was that day that I realized pain was an addiction for me and that I was holding on to it so closely. I once heard a very powerful sermon that said, if you don't desire to do something you know you should or shouldn't do, you should pray to God to help you with that desire. I started praying to him every single day to take away my desire to have pain. Yeah, yeah. So how did Jesus meet you where you were at? Mm -hmm. So as I began to walk in his obedience, God began to remove this desire. I'm confident that he can do the same for any of you with whatever you're personally struggling with. 
After all, this was something that affected me every single day, and he answered my prayer. As I think back to this woman who dealt with the daily bleeding, I think how miraculous it must have felt for her to experience the pain going away. Although this didn't happen to me in one day, I did experience my physical pain diminish very quickly. And in some ways, I felt like a whole new person. I started adapting to what it meant to be set free from daily pain, not to expect that it would never come back, but to know that God led me through it and can make something beautiful out of it. As I was able to adjust back to my daily life, doing things with others more, exercising again, I started to feel mental healing as well. I just knew others had to hear about this. I felt so alone during this journey, but along the way, I met many different people going through similar or different things. People who were in the hospital for mental health. People who also had to go to the chronic pain center because pain was such a barrier in their life and they wanted to do something about it. People who were also dealing with my rare neurological disorder. It was such a challenging time in my life, but it strengthened me so much. After going through all this, not only did I realize that I wasn't alone in this world, but just how much God truly loves me and is always here no matter how many levels of pain I'm going through, physical, spiritual, and mental. And he cares about me so much. And he cares about all of you too. Yeah. So, uh, so how has life been different after Jesus met you? <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't gone through that. Something that originally distanced me from God brought me closer to him than ever before. I just remember the first day I was in the hospital in 2013, looking over at my Bible and knowing that God had me there for a reason, and I decided that day I was just going to keep trusting him through all of this. There are some days that were so dark, and I wondered where he was in all of this, and the enemy liked to use that against me as an attack. But when I started letting go of the pain, I began to shift my identity to who I was as a Christian and in Christ. God saved me, and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Thank you. That's good. That's good. Yes. Yes. So, how does hope return? Hope returns when we choose to have enough faith in Jesus to, to turn to him completely turn to him first instead of turning to other things we choose to obey him whatever he says to do that's what we do we acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves from the darkness of this hopelessness we lay aside all of our self-sufficiency and all of our desires to live the way that we want to and we place our complete trust in Jesus and we choose to live the way that he tells us to. That's our choice. I want to pray, and then, uh, and then we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, go back to a song. So let's, uh, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that, that you are the one that, walks with us every single day. You are the one who has promised that your hands are always, always outstretched to us. 
not because of what we have, not because of who we know, but just because we're your kids. Thank you for adopting all of us who, ex- who have accepted you into our lives. Thank you for adopting us into your family. We are grateful that you have promised that you would never leave us. So as we go about our day, after we're done in worship, Lord, I pray that you would capture our minds throughout today, throughout this week. Capture our minds and keep us thinking about you. In your name, amen. As we are singing, there's going to be some prayer team members. You'll see they'll be standing out around the sides here. They've probably got a little, a little uh, orange badge on. Um, uh, and if you'd like to, when, when we're all done, if you'd like to pray with Dave and Aaron, they're just going to be kind of be hanging up here and they can talk with you a little bit as well. But don't leave here if you know that there are things that you've not given up to him. Don't leave here keeping this stuff in your, in your heart. Allow one of these prayer team members to pray with you.